Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of Has American Christianity Failed? Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. We're going to be looking today at the nature of worship, the differences between American Christianity's version of worship and historic Christianity's version of worship. That will be on page 176. We'll have a, a chat on that, and then we're going to talk about... Um, kind of tangentially related topic of this idea of is Christianity a relationship or a religion? And uh, from there, if we have time, we'll go into a little bit of a discussion of piety and the Christian life. That's kind of how we round out chapter 8. Let's see how far we get. But before we begin in earnest, let's have an invocation and prayer. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. All right, on page 176, where the subheading is Worship is Being Served by Jesus, I have to say autobiographically, even though I was raised in the Lutheran Church, this was one of the most eye-opening things to me in my early adult life that just forever transformed the way I understand theology and the way I practice as a Christian. I think if I had to describe what I think was going on in my heart and mind before, and that of probably many millions of Christians here in America, it's this idea that you come into church on Sunday morning and you're all in a room, and if you were to ask the question of, well, where's God? He's everywhere and nowhere, just like he's kind of everywhere and nowhere when you're driving down the freeway or at a soccer game or on a surfboard and you kind of gather with a collection of like-minded people and you hear the scriptures and you sing some songs a pastor gets up and says a few words but it's very much a anthropocentric activity a man-centered activity there's a collection of human beings and it's what we human beings are doing and we're kind of worshiping and praising and offering and giving from man to God, and God is kind of just generally accepting this. And I think that that's probably how most Americans tend to perceive worship on a Sunday morning. What we're going to see is something radically different, an entire shift, and it's one in faith, it's one in perception, it comes on the basis of Christ's words. And it really changes the entire meaning of worship. From something that I have to confess, I didn't, I mean, I went through various phases as I was growing up, as most of us do, to like, kind of liking church, kind of not liking church. But at its best, it was a community of Christians just sort of building one another up and sending our worship up to God and God simply receiving it which in hindsight and by way of what we're going to contrast that with is completely anemic and empty and boring and drab. So let's get into this. We'll let Wolf Mueller do the heavy lifting and I will make my comments along the way. Worship is being served by Jesus. 
What is worship? This is one of those questions wanting a clear answer from the Lord's Church. Unfortunately, answers are muddled. American Christianity generally answers, Worship is my praise and thanks to God for who he is and what he's done. Worship is the yearning of the heart to be close to God. Worship is our service of singing and praying to God. The common thing in these answers is this. We are the ones acting, praying, singing, praising. We are the givers, and God is the getter. This is what I thought about worship, what I was taught by American Christianity. Worship was deepening my relationship with God, having an experience of God's presence being moved in my inner being. In American Christianity, worship is a perfect fusion of moralism and mysticism. My actions and attitudes, with a little help from the praise band, were inducing a quote-unquote worship experience. And indeed, that's what many of the megachurches tend to call their services, a worship experience. Wolf Mueller continues, God was close, I could feel it, at least most of the time. There were, quote-unquote, Holy Spirit goosebumps, the sensation of being lost like a drop in the ocean, hands and voice raised in surrender and offering myself to God. Here I am to worship, here I am to bow down. Sing like never before, O my soul, I'll worship your holy name. The praise song itself is understood as the sacrifice of praise offered in the Christian heart to God. Now the bracketed and bolded words, American Christianity's desire for something new, exciting, and entertaining stands behind the adjective contemporary which is stuck like a leech to the word worship. How so? Um, because because cont- if you're doing it present tense, it's by definition contemporary. So to call something contemporary worship is like, you know, what are you having for breakfast this morning? Oh, contemporary breakfast. You know, contemporary. I mean, it's what you're having right now. So it's a redundancy. So what does it actually mean? It's denoting something other than present tense. And, what it's denoting, Wolfmuller has depicted quite well, something new, exciting, and entertaining. New worship, exciting worship, entertaining worship. <clears throat> All right, he continues. We consider the scriptures a different, when we consider the scriptures, a different picture emerges. The Bible has a different theology of worship. Rather than our service to Jesus, The Bible teaches that Jesus serves us. Worship is not first or primarily our works, our praises, our yearning and sacrifice, but God's work and word, his speaking and giving. This is such a radically different picture from our normal understanding of worship that we should hear it again, 
Worship is Jesus serving us. Jesus says, quote, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Not to be served, but to serve. Jesus came to serve, and he still comes to serve us. Okay, so we're with Wolf Mueller. We're, we're going to grasp hold, and I'll just simply add another scripture, that Jesus speaks of his unique way of being present in Christian worship when, for example, he says, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. Now, we already have Jesus saying, Lo, I am with you, plural, always, even to the end of the age. We, if we were to call that one mode of presence, his general presence with every Christian, we would still have to distinguish between that and what he says when he says, where two or three are gathered in my, are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. That's a unique expression. And that's the expression that when we come together, we are forming then church as such. So, where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am. And then if we combine this with what Jesus says, okay, well, he's there now with us. What's he there to do? I came not to be served, but to serve. So, this is the idea then that really harkens all the way back to the Old Testament scriptures. That even when the Old Testament scriptures are being read or recited or spoken, who is doing the speaking? God. Yeah. And specifically, God through his word, capital W, word. And so, it is Christ himself who is speaking. It's Christ himself who is doing the doing. So, the first way and the most obvious way that Christ serves us is by his speaking. And that's even written into the liturgy so that I think, I mean, I know that different pastors feel different ways about this, but I think that one of the things that we do when we say in our liturgical formulations, a reading from such and such, is actually kind of misleading. And why I think it's kind of misleading, in, in the past it used to be things like a le- the lesson from, or something, in other words, the teaching from. I prefer that because we are not merely reading. Now, it's true enough we're reading, okay, but it's not merely reading, and reading tends to put our minds in the way of recitation. Someone's reading this or reciting this through so that we would all, like, hear that and just think on it a bit. But that's not at all what's going on in the liturgy. How can I make such a bold assumption? Because of what comes after the readings, This is the word of the Lord. As if everybody didn't realize that already at the beginning when the book and chapter and verses were already quoted. Everybody knows that that comes from the Bible, that that comes from the word of God, that that is the word of God. So what are we confessing there in the creed? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. We're confessing that what we've had is not a mere reading. We've just heard the living voice of the living God. We've just heard that word go forth from the mouth of God through lowly human lips. But that's exactly how Christ works. He becomes present to us under lowly human, uh, human 
man-made bread and wine, and the lowliness of water and holy baptism. So now he comes to us through the lowliness of a sinner's lips. He uses these means, but it's still him doing the doing. So in the liturgy, this is the word of the Lord. We're all saying, I have just heard the living voice of the living God. And that word has been vertically from God to my ears, and his word does not return void. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by that word of God. It's one of the things why Jesus says, take care how you hear. Because if you're just there like, ah, it's a reading, ah, whatever, it's a recitation, ah, this again, I already know all this, ah, I'd rather think of my grocery list or what I'm doing in the afternoon. Well, you've just closed your ears to the living voice of the living God. It's a powerful word. It's not like we're up there like reciting Huckleberry Finn or some poetry or you know, whatever the, case, whatever the case may be. This is the word of the Lord to which the congregation responds in faith. Thanks be to God. So that's, that's at the heart and the core of where two or three are gathered in my name. There I am. And I came not to be served, but to serve. And the number one way he serves is by his word. And of course, the word of the gospel is that which cleanses our hearts and renews in us a right spirit. And so that is a word that takes away our sins. That's the ultimate purpose of his word. Now, his word being, we can divide it into law and gospel, that which reveals our sins to us, leads us to repentance, and then that which proclaims our sins forgiven for the sake of Jesus' atoning death on the cross. That's the gospel. So we're going to hear both of those in the way he speaks. But this is the way he's serving us. He's calling us present tense to repentance, and he's creating us in us present tense, clean hearts and right spirits. Does that make sense? It's like, why do you go to church? Not to sit in a room and sing a bunch of hymns with people, not even strictly speaking to praise God, but rather to come and, ha- and be in the presence of the Holy One of God, of Christ, who, as St. Peter says, is the pastor and bishop of our souls, and to have him speak his living words into my heart, convicting me of sin, cleansing me, renewing in me a right heart and a clean spirit, or a right spirit, a clean heart, I think. So this is, this is like the why of worship, and that changes everything. It changes everything, because you come, to, you come into worship not as, I've got something to give God, but as God has something for me. He has a word that's for me. And then, of course, then we respond. I, and that's the nature of our response is to sing praises and hymns, and very frequently the hymn that he fits the reading. So we're confessing back to God what God has just said to us in faith and uh, expounding upon it and meditating on the implications of that word he's spoken to us. And so the thank, praise, serve, and obey him is all a result of what he's already done for us. Now, you might remember, too, the divine service on Sunday morning is actually broken into two services. Have you seen this strange thing? The service of the word, that's the first part, followed by the service of the sacrament. So these two services kind of jam together. So if there's announcements made, they're made around offering, which kind of depicts us, you know, to the American mindset, it's like in the middle of the service. It's like, no, 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 that's actually between the two services. So that's precisely the point at which you'd make mundane announcements or otherwise. So the service of the word culminates with the high point, with God himself speaking to us. The sermon, by the way, 
not that you'd necessarily pit the sermon and the word of God against each other. The sermon is to be an explication of that word of God. But that word of God being spoke, spoken into our ears, present tense, is the high point. Okay, what's the second, what's the high point of the second service, the service of the sacrament? Sacrament. Right, the sacrament. Thank you. So this is Christ present with us now, sacramentally, giving his body and his blood for us Christians to eat and to drink for the forgiveness of our sins. Now this is a real present tense action. Of course, if you're, again, just to follow our Lord's words, if you're not taking care how you hear, taking care how you receive, you might just mistake it as a bunch of rite and ritual and not much there and just a bunch of Christians doing rites and rituals and you're going to miss what's actually happening. Because what's actually happening is Christ, present tense, giving himself for us for the forgiveness of our sins, uniting himself with us that we might be strengthened in our faith and strengthened for the week ahead. So these two services, the service of the word and the service of the sacrament, the high point of them is Christ serving us via his word and via his table. And the gifts he gives, we receive. And then the whole worship that we do is confessing this, giving thanks for this, praising him for this, and, uh, and the like. Okay, so does that make sense? I mean, we can put this in an extreme because it entirely flip-flops, by contrast, what American worship is about. American worship generally is about everything we do and give for God, and we hope to have this experience that God gives us of, and that's very nebulous and kind of ultimately dangerous, but this experience, quote-unquote, of God or of the Holy Spirit. And that's the minor. The major is everything we're doing. This flips it. The major is what Christ does for us. And by the way, the beauty of this is it doesn't matter whether you quote-unquote feel it or not or are in the mood for it or not or get yourself worked up for it or not. It's just objectively there. Now, you may receive it sometimes just joyfully. You may receive it sometimes with ecstatic joy. You may receive it sometimes with repentantly, with that repentant joy. You might receive it sometimes with tears in your eyes. I mean, you can have the full gambit of emotions but it's not required of you. It's there objectively, whether you're with it or not, whether Saturday night you got no sleep or great sleep, whether it was a rough week or a good week, you know, it's objectively there, and you just respond how you respond. It's kind of the beauty of our hymnody, too, is that hymnody, like, no matter how you're feeling, that hymnody has a way of just being true in and of itself, and the music being such that it's like, you can sing it even if you're down. You know? Whereas, uh, you know, and again, I'm, I'm a little bit off into the shallow water here, but you know, if you spent a significant amount of time in big box churches, mega churches, it's like sometimes the worship and the pizzazz and the energy up here and the spirituality up here and the can you make it is like really a put off if you're struggling if it was a rough week or a rough night before if you're low energy low in your soul your heart is troubled and it's like no you got to join in the worship experience trademark Um, so this is one of the really beautiful things too about the objectivity of christ being there 
exactly where he promises, speaking through his word, coming to us through his sacrament. You can be in whatever position you are, take care how you hear and how you receive, and profit mightily from it. Even if you walk away going like, well, I don't know what I profited from that. It's like, okay, well, that was truly Christ's word, wasn't it? Yeah. That was truly Christ's sacrament, wasn't it? Yeah. Then trust me, you profited. There's no such thing as being like, well, I wasn't fed. Okay, well, was the good shepherd's word there? Was the good shepherd's feast there? Then you were fed. Okay, so it's, we're talking about an objective kind of reality here, not a subjective reality of, do I feel fed? Do I feel like I was reached? So, historic Christian worship leaves no room for that subjectivism. You objectively were. Okay. Maybe I'll stop there. Take any reflections or any questions. Maybe you disagree with some of my assessment. Um, and that's fine. Uh, but then we'll jump back into Wolfmuller. So I see a, a hand or two up here. Okay. All right. Well, I just wanted to make that. Mm, mm. One second. Yeah. It's a reflection. Uh, some of us were at a wedding this past weekend in a big church. And two things that I saw that struck me as odd. One was the pastor said that the gospel was going to be read. And he said, I have to say, the mother of the bride wants us to stand. And everybody started laughing. Like, mm. he, 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 it's so funny. Mm. And they continued to Twitter about how cute that was that she asked us to stand. Mm. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. And then the guy who was going to read the gospel trots up to it the... Was in an epistle. It wasn't the gospel. Well, either. okay. okay. A, we were there. Uh, <laughs> that's the other person. <laughs> um, anyway, he... Yeah, we stood for the epistle. Yeah, <laughs> that was crazy. Anyway, um, he takes out his cell phone and he reads it out of his cell phone. In a that table is better looking than their their lectern, mm. and <laughs> everything else was. And it just struck me as they're just keep dumbing it down, dumbing it down. But they are all smiling and laughing and happy and looking mm. all saved, you know, and I... Yeah, we can, I think we can look at that. I mean, of course, okay, so obviously, obviously we're not, you know, the meditation that you're having isn't from a place of spiritual snobbery because this is a mega church. No, that, yeah, and, and so what we're looking at is people capable of a higher reverence who are specifically choosing not to. I mean, Christ is. We've got these beautiful. We've got these beautiful pictures of our army chaplains in the field, where like the altar is like a bale of hay or a log or you know, and we've got these beautiful pictures of Lutherans worshiping in Africa, and the altar is like a folding table with a cloth over it. I mean, this. But it's an altar. It, yeah, and here's the thing: like in that moment, that's the most reverent thing they can do. That's a that's a huge difference from hey, we've got we've got literally uh, for all intents and purposes we've got limited resource uh, uh, excuse me limitless resources and we're going to choose to do this thing now, where does that irreverence come from? That's the question, and so what I'm going to assert is at the root of all irreverence is a loss of exactly this reality we're talking about, that where two or three are gathered, there I am. 
This is the Holy One of Israel. This is the one you see revealed in the New Testament documents on the Lord's Day. Context is divine worship. John's revelation. And when he sees Jesus in the midst of the divine service, that's the context for revelation, Jesus has hair that is white and eyes of fire and a two-edged sword coming from his mouth and uh, clothing gleaming with the brightness of the sun and feet as burnished bronze. And John's response is to fall down on his face before him. So we've gone a long way from first century understanding of what's going on in divine service to what the church in America thinks is going on in divine service. Now, if you lose that sense of Christ present there in a way he's not present everywhere else, in a different mode and manner, if you lose that and you think of, well, we're just here to worship God and God is everywhere and nowhere and it's really no different than the bowling alley or or the beach, well, then I'm not gonna act any differently than if I was at the bowling alley or the beach. And if someone might suggest something reverent, like standing for the word of the Lord, this strikes us as odd and quaint and frankly kind of clueless. Because don't you know that God is no is here no different than he's everywhere? But of course, the true cluelessness is that perspective. Because Christian worship is the living presence of the crucified and risen one who comes hidden, but who comes in glory uh, to forgive the sins of his people and strengthen us with his word. So I look, at, I look at irreverence as symptomatic of a loss of the, of the true theology of what Christian worship is, right? Well, you're dumbing down God to a, con- a contemporary of yours, mm-hmm. a yeah. pal. Yeah, a pal. Yeah, exactly. And now this also frequently, by the way, I mean, because we're, I, even the way I'm critiquing this is fairly abstract, you can make it more concrete and more poignant. Irreverence thrives where the sacrament of the altar is denied. Because you don't have the bodily presence of, of Christ. Now, there are exceptions to this because you get a reverence in Roman Catholicism here in America. You get a reverence in Lutheranism here in America. But very frequently what's already been eroded is while the mouth is confessing this is the true body and blood of Christ, I- anyone can come up. Anyone can receive which is already a tacit and implicit denial of what it is. Because if you really believed it was that, then not everyone could come up. You'd at minimum have to be baptized and in the same faith as the rest who are communing at that altar. That's what communion means. Union with. Union with Christ, union with the other people there. So I think that this is how it surfaces in Lutheran churches and in Roman Catholic churches, even where the, with their mouth, what's confessed is Christ is truly present in body and blood for us for the forgiveness of our sins. But you all come, which means we don't really believe that. And then um, that allows us to say, okay, well, he's sort of nebulously present in the same way he's present for everyone, even if that's in the sacrament, in the same way he's present in all places. And then that allows the same kind of irreverence we have in all places. So that no distinction is being made of, no, this is worship, this is divine service. Something different is happening here than is happening anywhere else in all of life. So there are other ways we can attack this sociologically, but I think theologically that's as close as we actually get.
Please. Uh, my question actually goes along with this. Um, I wanted to re-examine, go back to the word contemporary, mm-hmm. and look at the opposite meaning of contemporary uh, contrasted to the meaning of contemporary. Mm-hmm. And that is that if you have something that's contemporary, it kind of has a positive connotation and, mm-hmm. you know, we're with it and everything else. The opposite is stale, old, mm-hmm. you know, uh, has been, right. you know, lifelessness and everything else. And we often say, use these terms ourselves, we'll say, oh, we have an organ service. Well, mm-hmm. <laughs> that's not a good way to describe mm-hmm. what we do, but it, it, it says we're not contemporary. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, could you talk about that, it, kind of what you were talking about before, is it, it's uh, just a strange thing to me to look at the opposite of contemporary. Um, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, there's, there's, if you went back 100 years, 200 years, 500 years, 1,000 years, 1,500 years, all the way back, any time. You just sort of like did a time warp. Let's, let's be a little science fiction here. You just grabbed an average Christian or pastor or a theologian and like zipped him up here and you were like, hey, so do you want to go to the contemporary service or the traditional service? They'd be like, well, what's the contemporary? What does that mean? And they'd he'd be like, well, it's innovative. It's new. And he, okay, tradition means handed down. Innovation means new, just started. Any Christian for like 1950 years would say, are you crazy? I want the traditional (laughs) service. A contemporary service, a service of innovation, of new things happening, um, that can't be right. Because it's, it's trying to be independent of the tradition, trying to be independent of the previous generations, which is inimical to Christianity. In fact, that's one of the oldest words for heresy or false teaching or false practice. Innovation. Something new. So I think that there's an irony there. I know that's probably not the direction you were... Uh, you were going with it, but there is a, there is an irony just in the language we use, and um, I I tend to like the word because traditional is it tends to just in our, people's minds be like the opposite of contemporary, which means old fashioned and dead. So I tend to I tend to like to say historic because that's what it is. I mean Luther, what changes came to the divine service via. You know, if you try, trace the present-day divine service that we have, um, I- even if you were to compare it to Roman Catholic service, they're very similar in terms of structure. Why? It's just historic Western Christendom. That's what it is. Um, changes come into the Lutheran uh, expression of the Western service because we saw certain elements of the Roman Catholic version that obfuscate the gospel and teach things contrary to the scriptures. Prayer to the saints, worship of Mary, that the Lord's Supper is a sacrifice we're making to God, these kinds of things. So we made the bare minimum amount of changes to let the truth of God's word go forward. But it's deeply traditional, it's deeply Western, and it traces all the way back to the roots of Christianity. Even going back um, so far as... uh, Acts, where in the book of Acts, Christians are worshiping in the fellowship and in the doctrine and fellowship of the apostles. 
Okay? That would be equivalent to our service of the word. In the prayers, we have those. And <laughs> in the breaking of the bread, that's not having peanut butter sandwiches after service. That's the Lord's Supper. So even when you go back to Acts, you see the basic structure of Christian worship in both East and West all the way through. Yeah. So there are some ironies there. And I, again, though, at, at the heart of it is what do Christians believe that shapes and forms what they think about worship all throughout the centuries? They believe that Christ is present doing something. That tends to be the, and thus reverence is required. And that reverence, can, that reverence isn't culturally bound. I mean, there's great freedom within that reverence. There's, you, you, watch, um, you can watch Lutheran services in different parts of, of Africa where there's no organ. They've got bongo drums. They're not wearing dark suits. They're wearing the brightest colors they own. Um, but, in their, but in that culture, it's extremely reverent what they're doing. And that's the, so that's the key. It's not that we're all marching lockstep according to some form. It's that you take whatever time and place you're in and say, how do we show reverence because we know who's here and what he's giving to us, right? Yeah, okay, please. Um, in one of the few places that I'm aware of in the Bible where we're, a song is described, the angels sing, holy, 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 yeah. right? And is it true that holy means separate mm-hmm. or something? Okay, so it then makes sense that it would be appropriate to do something in the service, the divine service, mm-hmm. the form of worship to, that would be separate, mm-hmm. that would stand out and yeah. say, this is not like every day. This is not like normal. This is separate. This yeah. is different. Yeah, exactly right. So in, um, in modern Lutherans, I mean, again, this is some of the freedom. We're not all marching lockstep, and that's fine. But this has to do to some degree, I think it's a react. There are historical circumstances here. There's two ways of looking at this, like insider baseball, what's going on within Lutheranism, but then also what is Lutheranism up against in America in particular. And if we view this particular question from that angle, you can see why Lutherans, in part at least, started doing confession absolution at the beginning of the service. It's this acknowledgement that we're coming into the presence of the Holy One of Israel. We're coming into the presence of that very one who sits enthroned between the seraphim as they cry out, holy, holy, holy. And in fact, we, we have that so built into our worship that when you get to the service of the sacrament, um, you find that it's called the Sanctus, and that's the hymn of the seraphim from Isaiah 6 brought into the context of the Lord's Supper. Why? Because you remember in Isaiah 6 that one of the seraphim takes from the altar and touches it to Isaiah's lips and says, your sins have been atoned for. It's no different now than Christ, except Christ is better, um, than Christ taking not a coal from the altar, but his very body and touching it to your lips and saying, for you, for the forgiveness of sins. So, yeah. All of the liturgy is there to safeguard and hand down and, and have us reflect on the biblical reality of worship. In a very real sense, when we worship here on earth, we're engaging in the worship it, that is in heaven. And that's, that's what Revelation shows us. It's ongoing cosmic worship that we uh, become part of uh, very explicitly in divine service. And that worship centers on 
Christ, the Lamb of God, Christ, the King of angels, and all that he gives and does for angels and for men. So anyway, thank you for that reflection. Yes, please. So um, a lot of the language of the Psalms seems to have some part of action on the part of the the worshiper. Mm -hmm. I would say like my soul worships the Lord or even encouragement for others to worship the Lord. Yeah. And that I think could lend itself to, well, this is me doing the action. Mm -hmm. So how do we rightly understand those passages? Yeah, it's great. And and to be sure here, um, we can, I have, many of us have probably gone too far, especially in some of our critiques of uh, repetition, critiques of language of um, first person singular, first person plural, uh, because you find that replete in the Psalms. There's nothing wrong with it. But what you, what you find, it, you have to remember that as the Psalms are being penned, what's going on? You have the entire Old Testament temple worship, which is set up from God to man. So the whole idea is that God has called his people out of Israel, or out of Israel, out of Egypt, and now they're sojourners, so they're in tents. Why does he set up his tabernacle? What's a tabernacle? A big tent. God wants to dwell with his people, right? But he wants to dwell with them in a really human way. He want, In the same way that people, like, hey, come over to my tent on Friday night. We're going to have some wine, you know? Maybe watch these people chase the squirrel around or whatever they did for sports back then. I don't know. Um, But, hey, come over to my tent. All right, so God wants to move into the neighborhood in his tent, and he wants to have people over at his tent. In fact, once a week. But how does a holy God move into the neighborhood and have unholy people come into his tent and share fellowship with him? Well, there has to be atoning sacrifices to cleanse the people. So he institutes those. In order to have those atoning sacrifices not be done by the people, but be done by God for the people, he orders a priesthood to be his hands and feet. So the priests carry out the sacrifices by which God makes atonement for the sins of the people so that they can come into his presence, receive his gifts and blessings, and then sing the psalms as liturgical hymns in response. Right, you see? So, um, yes, so then to round that out, That's the same way, uh, in terms of structure, we think of worship as Christians. Now, it's not God making sacrifices for us through the priesthood, but rather it's Christ as the one high priest who made the sacrifice once and for all, applying that sacrifice to us present tense, and then we are responding with psalms and hymns and songs of praise. So that's how, it, that's how it functions in Christian worship. And yes, I think the Psalms safeguard us from going too far sometimes in our critiques over and against uh, some elements of contemporary worship. Now, I mean, that being said, some elements of contemporary worship or contemporary hymnody are rather mundane and uh, difficult to sing. Yeah, I think I've I think I've handled that the best way I can. That's a great question. Please, just to follow up to that question, um, mm-hmm. you know, Psalm one hundred. Looking at it, it's a very short psalm, but it is it's where you make a joyful noise unto the Lord, serve the Lord with gladness, come into His presence. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, enter his gates with thanksgiving. Give thanks. So it's all mm-hmm. the verb seems to be. So what you're saying is we do that in response. Yeah. Uh, and probably are, are we saying that the uh, American Christianity church that we are talking about uh, has looked at this and says that's all we're going to do. They're, they're, they're not seeing both sides, or how, how would you call I mean, there's a number of ways to critique it. I would say in the first place, most of American Christi- Christianity isn't using the Psalms. Mm-hmm. They're, they're using contemporary songs that in, in some respects parallel things going on in the Psalms, but in many respects don't. Mm-hmm. Uh, and many times it's... Um, the kind of, you know, and without comparing like text to text, it's just going to devolve to kind of a general statement and a kind of generality. And you'll just have to see if you, in your experience you think this is true or not. You can weigh, weigh my perception of this. But in my perception, there, even though there are similar elements between many contemporary hymns and the Psalms, they're very frequently doing very different things. And the focus on me and doing this in the context of the worship, like here I am to worship, here I am to praise you, is a, is a kind of a rather strange statement if that becomes a centerpiece because like, well, isn't that self-evident? So what's really going on there is this lifting up of the self trying to meet God halfway in terms of achieving experience, right? So once you, once you grasp that that's the theology of the worship, of what's going on, all of a sudden that, uh, that thing that seemed to compare to favorably to the structure of a given psalm, all of a sudden takes on a different meaning and context in the context it's being used, right? So you know, if, if you've got the psalms that are very heavily, um, you know, first person singular, first person um, plural, me, we, us, doing the doing in the Psalms. I just have to remember that, that enti- the entire context of that is the tabernacle and the temple and the response to what God has very tangibly in present tense done, which is missing from the contemporary worship. Several little comments. Of, in the response, I think of it in my mind when we're talking about it, it's like, if you go to somebody's house for dinner or something, mm-hmm. you wouldn't leave without saying thank you or saying this is delicious or whatever. <laughs> sure. You know, it's a response to what God sure. has given us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then I think there's a dichotomy in our culture where I, n- wanting new things on everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also, some of us, I guess, appreciate antiques. I think of... Um, you know, if you saw Washington's desk or what he used in Battle of the Revolutionary War, you mm-hmm. bring that, the what you know of that time to viewing that, and and uh, or something like I think of C.S. Lewis's wardrobe that you can go see. You know it. Mm-hmm. What is that school? I forget. Anyway, uh, so you bring the whole story in your mind when you see that, and you're kind of. taken aback by seeing that. Then I think of, I remember years ago, reading in C.S. Lewis, he said, go to the original. Don't bother with what's, quote, new. And I was really taken aback. So I had to think about that for a long time. Mm -hmm. Things came along in life that verified that he was right. Mm -hmm. Um, And the other thing is, um, I think this comes from C.S. Lewis, too. I read this recently in a a book, um, 
if you see, I would think, like a waterfall in Yosemite like Bridal Veil Falls, which mm -hmm. is magnificent, he said, to call something like that pretty is not appreciating what it is. You have to get the right, you have to understand what it is, and it expre is expressed in the words. Mm. Yeah, thank you for those reflections. Thank you for those reflections. Um, I think, I think uh, if you're, and um, I mean, for those who are online, if you're kind of struggling with the generalities we're being used, let me commend to you um, Lutheran satire by uh, Pastor Hans Feeney. And he's got a segment, it's titled something to the effect of Clint Eastwood reads contemporary worship lyrics. And you'll kind of see the trouble. That will help you more than anything else see the, see the trouble and see um, objectively what is under critique here um, because it's quoting from worship songs that are very popular, have been very popular in mega churches. And you'll see that not only do they tend to have a kind of vacuous or substanceless quality to them, but they also tend to be extremely feminine. And that's the fun of having uh, Clint Eastwood read the lyrics of these. Um, he does some other things. He's got uh, the martyrs read Joel Osteen quotes. So as people are being martyred, they're quoting that you can have your best life now, you just have to have a positive attitude. <laughs> this kind of thing. So um, what's, what's really at play there under that, under that uh, satire is if it's not a hymn that can be sung at all times and all places by all people, it really, uh, by, and I hear I mean Christians, it, you really ought to question it's, it, if, it's worth, if it's worth it. That's one of the things that historic worship has is we have hymns from all around the globe and from virtually every century, and they're all packed into our hymnal, and the vast majority of them have stood the test of time. They're profitable for multiple generations and profitable in a way that's much more global than um, some of the American Christian stuff um, that uh, is very much, and of course this has been satirized amongst the pagans in our culture too, South Park, uh, for example, where Eric Cartman um, creates a Christian band and he does so by taking whatever the romantic song of the day is, you know, the love songs of the day, and just scratching out whoever it's to and writing in Jesus so that you've got love songs to Jesus. And, you know, it's, it is, it's pagan satire, but there's a kind of truth to the romantic relational nature to it. And, and now, by the way, we're kind of, we're, we're seamlessly transitioning where Wolf Mueller's going to transition, and that's into the nature of uh, this, this language of relationship versus religion, because relationship and, and worship often are two sides of the same coin. Okay, so uh, we're, am I cutting someone off? Was there another hand? Or we, we're okay. So on 177, what, what um, Wolf Mueller does here is takes us through Jesus washing his disciples' feet and that service and their, you know, that sense of like, no, I, you know, you're not going to wash my feet. Um, and his response to Peter so we have to, there's a kind of humility central to Christianity where we have to allow ourselves to be washed and served by Jesus. And that's true in worship. 
Let me just take a look here and see if there is... Uh, I mean, I think that this is a wonderful little section, and I commend it to you. If we, uh, if, we go to, if we go to the top of 180, let's just close this out. He cites here part of the Lutheran Confessions. This is Apology 5. So the worship and divine service of the gospel is to receive gifts from God. On the contrary, the worship of the law is to offer and present our gifts to God. However, we can offer nothing to God unless we have first been reconciled and born again. This passage, too, brings the greatest comfort as the chief worship of the gospel is to desire to receive the forgiveness of sins, grace, and righteousness. Um, behind this text is John 6, where the people ask Jesus, what must we be doing to be doing the works of God? And he says, believe in the Son of Man. So that belief, that reception, is at the heart of what it is, uh, not only to be a Christian, but then to worship as a Christian. So I commend this section to you in, in its uh, fullness. If we had more time, we'd go through it more thoroughly. But for now, let's move to 180 and the transition to it's not a relationship, it's a religion, quite provocative. Here, Wolf Mueller writes, Christianity is not a religion, it's a relationship. And he's got this in quotes. This is perhaps the most ubiquitous cliche of American Christianity. Um, even in Lutheran circles, you get this, like Jesus came to destroy religion and this kind of thing. All right. Wolfmuller says, here's what it is supposed to mean. Religion, or quote-unquote religion, is about rules, do's and don'ts, our works and all sorts of outward traditions, structured worship, ordinances like baptism and the Lord's Supper, saying the same prayer over and over. These are all the things religion does, and they are bad. Mostly, these are works, and they cannot save you. Quote-unquote relationship, on the other hand, is much more organic. We believe in Jesus and talk to him, and he talks to us. He lets us know he is close by and that he's got our back. We spend time together getting to know each other. Jesus and I are in a committed, long-term relationship, and this relationship is deepening and growing. All right, next paragraph. American Christianity has managed to mix mysticism with moralism. This takes us all the way back to the earliest chapter of this book. And the result is the understanding of Christianity as, quote, a personal relationship with Christ, end quote. We call this relationship theology. Relationship theology completely shapes the piety of American Christianity quote-unquote, quiet time, prayer, life, walk with God, being touched and moved in the church services and all sorts of other buzzwords grow out of the paradigm of relationship theology. Relationship theology is the reason behind the oft-noted critique that many worship songs could also be sung to your boyfriend or girlfriend. Now, quoting, I'm, I'm desperate for you and I'm, I'm lost without you. Now, quoting another set of lyrics, So heaven meets earth like a sloppy wet kiss, and my heart turns violently inside of my chest. 
relationship theology reorients our life with God so that we are always measuring how close we are to him and assessing the status of our relationship. I think that's kind of the key when you really drill down on this, that when you talk about relationship, it's a very, it's a neutral term. I mean, if there's two different things, there's a relationship between them that can be described in one way, shape, or form. Okay, but then in the description of that comes measurement of that and comes an ability to quantify or qualify that. And that's really where Wolf Mueller is going to drive and I think drive home his point. Now, he's kind of, again, quoting what goes on in the psyche and the mind of the American Christian. Am I close to God? Because, again, relationship and measurement. Am I close to God? Am I growing far from Him? It's time to take the relationship to the next level. With relationship theology, the purpose of our quiet time is to grow closer to God. The purpose of our prayers is to deepen the relationship. To have a good relationship, a husband and wife have to spend time together. They have to talk to each other. The same thing is true with our relationship with God. I think I've heard this preached a thousand times. Relationship theology turns prayer into a two-way conversation. We talk to God and we listen for Him. American Christianity expects God to talk directly to us in prayer, either through explicit words, impressions, or signs. There are problems with relationship theology. The word relationship never appears in the Bible. A few English versions added here and there to smooth out the translation, but it doesn't appear in the original. This means we cannot find a biblical definition of the idea. To be in relationship to something means there are, there are two at least objects interacting with each other, and it makes those interactions measurable. We generally speak of a relationship between two people. We measure their relationship in personal and emotional terms. A relationship can be quote-unquote good or quote-unquote bad or quote-unquote complicated. People can be close to or distant from each other or have no relationship at all. This is the first danger of relationship theology. It assumes the possibility of not having a relationship with Christ. This is not true. Everyone has a relationship with Jesus. Even the unbeliever has a relationship status with Jesus. They are died for by Jesus. They are loved by him. But apart from faith, they stand condemned, and he will on the last day be their judge. This is a relationship, just not a good one. The second danger with relationship theology is that it introduces the ideas of distance and measurement where they should not be. This can be seen in everyday usage. There is a danger, for example, in using the word relationship to describe the bond of marriage. I actually love this. This is great. The Bible teaches us that husband and wife are not in relationship with one another, but are one flesh brought together and united by God. To ask a husband and wife, how's your relationship, is in fact to put separation and distance between them. It is asking for a judgment, an assessment, a critique a relationship, after all, could always get better. The union of husband and wife, on the other hand, remains the same in good times and in bad. 
try asking a husband and wife these questions. How is your unity? How is your being one flesh? The questions don't make sense. And that is the joy and confidence of marriage. In other words, the language of relationship invites unnecessary critique and questions. I think that's really, really profound and insightful. Uh, Because again, this dovetails with what we're covering on Sunday morning about the vocations, where you'll you'll notice that nowhere does St. Paul say, hey, in order for you to have a good relationship with your spouse, you need to... No, there's no relationship talk at all. Why? The two have become one flesh, and this is the duty of one half of that one flesh union, and this is the duty of the other half. And the question of, like, how are you doing doesn't even make sense. The question maybe of, are you fulfilling your vocation makes sense. But the idea of, that would be more like your relationship to what God has given you to do, not your relationship to the other person. You see, So this is a subtle point, but I think a brilliant point and a profound point. Now, I just want to finish out the thought. I know we're right at time. So that third full paragraph on page 182, Wolf Muller says, The same thing is true with Christ and his church. The church is the bride of Christ united to him. This unity is something established, something sure, bound up to the work and word of Jesus, no matter how I feel about it. I am united to Christ. If I understand my status with Jesus chiefly in terms of relationship instead of unity, then the sure things become unsure and the established things become uncertain. The confidence of our salvation is weakened under the burden of improving the relationship. How is your relationship with Jesus is an entirely different question than how is your unity with Christ. You see, so we've let this language slip in and with it, it comes bearing a whole bunch of freight that as Wolfmuller, I think, rather insightfully has pointed out, ends up jeopardizing some of the biblical facts and foundations given to us. Let's, uh, next week, let's pick up with our critique of relationship theology. And maybe as we're going through it, we can also kind of do, okay, um, in, in what ways does this, like what errors are those who use the relationship language, what errors are they trying to steer away from? Because probably relationship language is borne out over and against errors of formalism, or what we would call in theology ex opera operato, by the doing of the deed itself. You could just go and light your candle, sacrifice your mass, put your money in the plate, and move on. So instead of that dry formalism, you need to have a relationship with Jesus. But what we actually see in place there is just an error and a kind of opposite error where truth lies between those two and is not identical with those two. All right, the Lord be with you.